Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, nerds. It is I, Jay, master of all things nerdy, and the host of the most interesting, the most popular, the most talked about podcast that I've ever heard of or created, the Just Us Nerds podcast. We are very pleased today to welcome a special guest uh, that we are going to be interviewing by phone, uh, Mr. J.M. DeMattis. Uh, Mr. DeMattis is an American writer of comic books, television, and novels. He has written for Marvel, DC, Boom, IDW, and many more. His career as a comic book writer has spanned the length of three decades, and in that time, he has produced some of the most beloved stories in the history of comic books. A versatile writer, Mr. DeMattis has produced tales of comedy, tragedy, and triumph. Just to name a few... With his seminal run on Justice League in, 19, in, the, in the 1980s, he turned the then preoccupation with grim and gritty superheroes on its head and presented a light-hearted series that emphasized the absurd aspects of people with strange powers, wearing colorful costumes, and volunteering to fight evildoers. In 1987, DeMattis and penciler Mike Zeck teamed to create Fearful Symmetry, which is also known as Craven's Last Hunt, an arc that ran throughout Marvel's then three Spider-Man titles. The arc had been collected in, uh, into multiple editions and 30 years later remains one of the most popular and respected stories in Spider-Man's history. He is celebrated not only by fans, but by his peers, and in 2004, he won the Eisner Award for Best Humor Publication for formerly known as the Justice League with Keith Giffen, Kevin McGuire, and Joseph Rubenstein. We could take the entire show just listing this man's accomplishments and still fall short of listing the entire credits of this living legend. Suffice to say, he is one of the music makers and dreamer of dreams that is responsible for our collective love of comic books. We at the Justice Nerds podcast are pleased and honored to be on the phone with Mr. J.M. DeMattis. Yeah! That was a hell of an introduction. <laughs> well, uh, I, it's it's befitting of you, sir, because uh, honestly, you. Uh, you you are one of those people who wrote my childhood. Yeah, I'd, I'd say our and, and adolescence, and adulthood, uh, <laughs> and middle age. So you got okay. you got. Well, all... and I'm still doing it, so let's keep going. And you're in. You're still. Let's carry me into the geriatric phase, if you will, sir. That's I, right. I... We'll write our we'll write our way right into the grave. Right? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm good with it. Hopefully not for at least another 30 or 40 years. Right. Exactly, exactly. So, um, Mr. Uh, Mr. DeMattis, I know you're, you don't have a whole lot of time, so let's, let's just dive right in. Um, okay, I, will, I will say one thing, although you, you didn't mispronounce my name because there are two different pronunciations. Oh, okay. I, over the years, I've, and a lot of people know me as DeMattis, but over the years I've come to prefer the official Italian pronunciation, which is DeMatteis. DeMatteis. Ah, okay. DeMatteis. All right, Mr. DeMatteis, then. And I just got invited to a convention in Italy for next year, so I have to make oh, sure. Oh, there you go. you got to make sure you get it right, then. You you have to hablo uh, uh, the, uh, the Italiano. That's I, right, I, exactly. <laughs> all right. Or at least, at least eat, be ready to eat all that great food. At the oh, yeah. Exactly. So, um, Mr. DiMatteis, this show is called Just Us Nerds. So, yeah. first and foremost, would you consider yourself a nerd? And if so, of what? What, what do you geek out over? Little, you know, uh, yeah. I mean, if we're having, if we're on the, if I'm on the phone talking to you, we're having this conversation. I'm absolutely a nerd, right? <laughs> because you know, I don't know anyone who, who ever got into comics who wasn't a total nerd about comics. When I say a nerd, I mean someone who's 
uh, un- for me, an obsessive who's really in love with something and digs deep into the minutia of that thing and is just, you know, has a love affair with it. So, you know. That's our definition as well, just so you know. Yeah. So, you know, I, I certainly grew up loving comics and, and science fiction and, and uh, rock and roll and, and I mean, it's a boiled down with music. I'm a total Beatles nerd. So, yeah, I'm a nerd about a lot of things. About a lot of things. And, you know, I, I'm as much of a nerd now in that sense as I was when I was eight years old. When, when probably nobody was even calling anybody a nerd back then. Uh, but uh, and it's interesting to watch the evolution of that term, which was once sort of an insult, which is now uh, the whole culture is nerd culture. Yeah. Everybody, every everybody's a nerd. Of something, yeah. Uh, no matter true. how hard they try not true. to be. Well, you know, there. Uh, I had friends, you know, when I was growing up, who were Grateful Dead nerds that would follow the dead everywhere, and they had to have every bootleg recording of every show. I mean, you can really can be a nerd about just about anything, but. It, but we were certainly, you know, the, the crowd of, of comic book and pop culture nerds. Yeah. No, we we uh, and we believe in that. So that that hence the the reason for that for that question. Um, yeah. So all right. So now, kind of the real. Uh, I, I'm very excited about this. Um, you wrote Fearful Symmetry, uh, also mm-hmm. known as Craven's Last Hunt, in 1987, and today. Yeah. Without a doubt, it's regarded as a, as a seminal Spider-Man story. Did you have any idea when you were writing this that people would still be talking about this 30 years later? No, I, I didn't know if anyone would be talking about it 30 minutes later, let alone 30 years later. You know? <laughs> um, you, you know, you sit down and you work on a story, and especially, you know, in those days, you know, collected editions and things like that were, were just sort of starting, you know? It wasn't everything in the world. Now, you know, you sneeze and they collect it six months later. <laughs> uh, but, but um, you know, then it, it was it was a new thing. So the idea that these stories would, would last and continue, um, it wasn't in anyone's head. Plus, you know, the idea that anyone doing any kind of art is going to say, ah, 30 years from now, people will still be remembering this great work of mine. You know, maybe somewhere out there there's some genius who knows that. But for the rest of us, you know, you have no idea. You know, all what you really hope for is, is a good story, and that's it. And then if the story lasts, even better. You know, we had a panel at a convention a few months ago, the East Coast Comic Con in New Jersey, and it was the first time that the entire Craven crew had been in a room together ever. It was me and Mike Zeck and Tim Shalikup and Bob McLeod and Rick Parker, who was our letterer. Um... It was uh, really uh, an amazing thing, and we were all sitting there saying, well, you know, not a million years have we have dreamed that we would um, that we would be still talking about the story now, and what a gratifying thing that is. Take us through a little bit of the development of the the plot, the plotting, and the characterizations for Fear, Fearful Symmetry. You you gave us, in, in my opinion, uh, and I'm sure in many others, one of the most layered versions of. Uh, not just Sergei Kravinov, but also Peter Parker, uh, something that really hadn't been seen before. So uh, t- take us a little bit through that development. What, it, what did you draw inspiration from? What did I draw inspiration from? You know, a lot of the inspiration really, really came from my own life at the time. It was a very, very uh, difficult time in my life. I was going through... Uh, Force and just a lot of things in my life were going to hell in a handbasket, mm. which I always said was terrible for me, but it was great for the story. Right. Because I I feel looking back, you know, I, I don't know if it was conscious at the time, but looking back, that 
each of those characters was, was really embodying some aspect of my own psyche. So I got to work through my stuff through those characters. You know, uh, part of me felt, felt as uh, you know, like like Peter buried alive, kind of crawling up, trying to find some light and some love in his life. Another part of my psyche that probably felt like vermin, like lost in some some sewer of despair somewhere, felt like Craven, this this sort of person teetering, you know, on, on the on the brink of insanity. All those characters it was a way for me to to work out what I was going through. At the same time, of course, they're separate from you. They're they're those characters. Peter Parker is Peter Parker, uh, and so while I was using them as vehicles for my own. Uh, struggles, you know, it was also an opportunity to explore them and deepen them and take those characters to places that they've never gone before. Because Craven, up until that point... Um, he was kind of a side villain. He, he wasn't... I mean, was he real? He wasn't like your, kind of like your Dr. Octopus or your Green, Green Goblin, Goblin or... Uh, he, he was not really... If you had asked people at, at that point who was Spider-Man's arch nemesis... I, I think you would have gotten, you know, maybe a, a Green Goblin, a Hobgoblin. I don't know that you would have gotten a, a, a Craven. I'm, I may be misremembering, but uh, perhaps you could correct me on that. No, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Um, that was kind of the fun of it. Craven was really, even for me, was like a second-tier Spider-Man villain, <laughs> maybe even a third-tier Spider-Man villain. To me, was this guy in pedal, in, you know, in leopard skin pedal push, running around hunting Spider-Man for reasons that were never very clear to me, you know? I just, and I've said this before, I happened to be uh, wasting time in my office, and in those days there was no internet, so I had to do something else to waste time, and uh, had a stack of comics there, and, and in there was a recent uh, handbook of the Marvel Universe, and it had uh, Craven in it, so I'm reading through that, and um, it mentions, and I still to this day don't know if it was ever established in a story, or if it was just something that the person who wrote that entry in the handbook came up with, but it said that Craven was Russian. And I am a big, 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 here we go back to being a nerd, I'm a Dostoevsky nerd, okay? Oh, okay. And, okay. and, 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 and a Karina. And, and brother, well, he didn't write Anna Karina. But, uh, uh, Tolstoy. Tolstoy. Crime and, 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 uh, yeah, right. Crime and Punishment, Brothers Karamazov, The Idiot, all these amazing, amazing novels. See what happens when I try to step outside of uh, your realm. my realm? Yeah. That's okay. You're, you're forgiven. <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, that just a light bulb went off. And, and you know, the, the, the Russian soul as, as portrayed in Dostoevsky's novels is something that I really, really resonated with. And it's that just that, that one line that he was Russian suddenly gave me this this insight into this character, you know, was, uh, um, and I took that with me into the writing, and that's where I began to really develop and explore him. And, you know, that's the fun of it. You take a character that nobody really cares about, you deepen them, you develop them, and then you kill them off, and you wait for them to start howling. <laughs> Why did you kill this character when three months before they were open going, oh, who cares what happens to Craven, you know? Um, so it was, it was interesting to go on that journey with that character for that, for that reason. No, you you add layers. You make us you make us care about them, and then uh, and, yeah, like you say, and then you you kill them off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, that my goal in the beginning wasn't like I don't wasn't oh I'm going to kill them off. It was that you know that was a natural evolution of the story. But I think that underscored you know what you can do with a character. Suddenly, people cared that he died, and once upon a time, not that long before that, no one would have cared at all. Exactly. So, all right, I have to ask this. This is something that we've dug up and read, and I want to see if this is true. 
Um, it says you not true. Okay. <laughs> Next question. All right. It says you wrote a version of this story for DC involving Batman and the Joker. Is that true? It it it's it's it is true and it's oh yeah well there's there's different versions to this truth. So the story went through um, a lot of uh, a lot of incarnations along the way, and one of the earlier incarnations uh, was with Batman and the Joker. And the idea was that the yeah, same thing: Joker killed Batman, buried him alive, um, and then the story went off into different arenas with it. But the basic premise right. of the villain that kills the hero, buries him alive. It started. I did two different versions of Batman story that I pitched: one with um one with Hugo Strange and one with the Joker. Because when I pitched the Joker story, um, what the, the, the concept was that, that once the Joker has killed Batman, his reason for being is gone. His right. mind snaps. And since he's already crazy, he yeah. goes sane. Um, and they were, the, uh, I remember, I think Lynn, Lynn was here, and they were developing the killing joke or something right at the same time. They didn't want two stories that were sort of exploring the Joker's backstory. Oh, uh, okay. So, you know, I, basically, um, you know, I, 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 I pitched it a couple of ways there. It got rejected by, by both Len Wein and Denny O'Neill, who were both the Batman editors at various times when I was pitching the story. Oh. Um, and this is the short version of the story, which I'm so glad they did because, you know, and I've said this many times before, but stories have lives of their own. Stories have timing of their own. And sometimes the writer is the last person to know what final form his story should take. Right. And I was being led to the right form. So when I when I got pitched on taking over Spider-Man with Mike Beck, um, I pulled that story out again. And of course it was, it was so perfect for Peter Parker. So perfect. Yeah. And I, and I, and I got, uh, some years later I got to do the Batman version of that story, which became a very different story called going sane. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in legends of the dark Knight, And that too was one of my absolute favorite superhero stories that I've ever done. Uh, so I got I got two great stories out of it. So you got two great stories out of it. That's fantastic. And and the thing is, I, I agree so much. It, it, what a what a different story it would have been had it been a Batman story initially, because it, the way that you wrote it, Craven sees Spider Man as something that he's really not. He he sees them as sort of as this kind of creature of of the night, something that is more true of of Batman. Of, of, of Batman. Um, Peter Parker is is always Peter Parker, uh, and and he is not really the the person that Craven sees him as, and and you acknowledge right. that at the end of the story. Right. That's yeah. That's kind of the point. Craven Craven has sort of projected onto Spider Man all the loss, all the pain of his own life. But you know, his 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 family was from Russia. They were aristocrats when the revolution came. They were overthrown. His mother died in an insane asylum. You know, his father was a broken man. And uh, there, he felt that their honor was stripped away, and then he finds his honor, he thinks, in the jungle and in the hunt, you know. Um, but but he creates this this delusion of this entity called the spider, you know, which he projects on the Spider-Man. And we know Peter, you know, that is you're absolutely right. That's not who Peter is. Peter, the beauty of Peter Parker to me is he's a regular guy in an extraordinary circumstance, a very a regular guy, and a truly truly decent human being who will always struggle, you know, uh, sometimes following his best instincts, sometimes against his worst instincts, but will always struggle to do the right thing because that's who he is. Um, but he's, but he's not, you know, he's not some, some dark entity. He's just, he's you and me, you know? 
if he can crawl up the sides of buildings. Right. Yeah. And the super strength. He's you and me yeah. who can crawl up the sides of buildings. Yeah. The, the the great thing about the story, and I've, I've always said this, uh, that great science fiction, great fiction, great fantasy, it's it's telling a story, like the original Star Trek. Yeah. It's telling a story about the human condition using fantastic circumstances. And so often in life, uh, we we see the world and we see others, but we don't, re- don't really see who they really are. We don't re- we we see them as we wish to see them, or uh, or like Craven, we project an aspect of our own pain uh, yes. on onto them. And I think especially with uh, y- even just you thinking about current events now and uh, you know the the, the rise of um, xenophobia, uh, racism, all of that. Uh, that's I think that's a, just an especially pertinent message now. Um, yeah, no, it's true. There's a line, uh, says, motivation affects perception. And, and um, uh, just on a psychological level, we're, you know, we're creating the world every day by our own perceptions, our own thoughts, our own feelings, which then affect our perceptions. And we see the world um, not necessarily as it is, but, but, but as we, and it's not even sometimes as we want it to be, you know, because people sometimes are just struggling with issues in their lives and they project those issues, issues out. And create a very dark world for themselves. And you could say, you know, that's what Craven did. He created a very, very dark world, and someone else will create a much uh, lighter world and a much more positive world and a much more hopeful world out of whatever's going on inside them. You know, and then when you dig deeper and get into the sort of spiritual aspect of things, well, there's many philosophers that say we literally do create the world. That this whole universe is just energy, and we're projecting this whole thing, projecting this movie out there, which is, you know, coming out of us. So there's different levels to that. But yeah, certainly Craven was, was completely projecting his pain and his struggle and creating something that wasn't there. So, you know, it's like the people that you meet sometimes and, and everything is always going wrong for them, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. everything. Is, and, and if you look at it, maybe things aren't really going that wrong, but their perception is that, that the universe is out to get them in some horrible way. And no matter what happens, they will take that in and interpret it that way. Not to negate anybody's real pain and real struggle. Well, and, pain is a pain, you know? And what a great um, mirror to Peter Parker, who, by contrast, uh, instead of saying, well, that person over there is the cause of all my pain, Peter Parker does the inverse. Uh, I'm the cause of all my pain. Everything. Right. Uh, one, one sometimes, of, to, sometimes to an extreme. Yes. Peter's you know, has always been his, that's his funny. Guilt. You know, he takes on the guilt of the universe onto himself. And he feels responsible yeah. for everything and everybody in a lot of ways. You know? Right. I've always and, referred to as uh, Peter as Mr. Guilty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah so guilt is, I did a story called The Child Within, you know, about how uh, he'd even taken on the guilt as a small child, which small children do when they're in a situation mm-hmm. that they don't understand. Took on the guilt of his own parents' death, which had nothing to do with it, you know? Right. But it's a psychological response that a lot of people have that when, when they're in a situation where they feel helpless, if they some and children really do this, if they take on responsibility in some way, it, it gives them, in a weird way, it gives them some power over, over a situation that otherwise they feel no control out of. If, if something's out of control, but suddenly you say, oh, this is my fault, in a weird way, you have, you have some semblance of control because you take the blame and somehow you cause this so it makes sense out of something chaotic. And children do that a lot with painful situations. Mm-hmm. That's, and that's another of my favorite uh, Spider-Man stories that I wrote that Child Within. Like. Child Within? I, yeah. Okay. Which was when I did, I did two years of uh, Spectacular Spider-Man with Sal Buscema, which is some of my favorite Spider-Man stories. 
ever that I've ever done. Still waiting for Marvel to pull it. Collecting <laughs> bits and pieces. I know they just did a Vulture collection with a bunch of Vulture stories, and they collected a, a Vulture three-part that, that Sal and I did. But I'd like to see the whole run collected. I just um, Actually, someone speaking of here, go, go back to Italy. I just got a few months ago, someone in Italy sent me a beautiful hardcover edition they did in Italy of, of The Child Within. And they also did a beautiful uh, edition of Craven, uh, which also included the sequel, Soul of the Hunter. And so I'd like to see Marvel get some of that stuff. Well, like you said, it's it's only a matter of time. Um, right. It's only been 30 years. It's only it's been 30, 30 years. years yeah. <laughs> it's, it's more like tw- it's 20-something years for the other stories. So, yeah, give them a little more. What's another 30? It's all right. Um, when, when you're doing a story like this, how much latitude does Marvel extend you? Uh, the, the story contains some, some pretty mature themes. I mean, you've got someone being buried alive. You've got murder. You've, got, you've even got implied rape. Uh, you've got suicide. So, it, it, you know, for the time, that was pretty edgy content for a Marvel book. Uh, so yeah, It was as dark as the Spider-Man story had ever gotten. I want to say it's probably one of the darkest. Yeah, yeah. You know, the interesting thing, looking back, I didn't really think about it at the time, is they let us do it exactly the way we wanted to do it. There was nobody said to me, don't do that. Oh, wow. Any aspect of it. I pitched the story. They liked the story. And to this day, the only thing I remember, and, you know, uh, others may remember differently, but the only thing I remember coming up, I remember there, there being, uh, there was a scene with Vermin where there were a lot of bones in the sewer. And some somebody asked, Mike, can you just tone down the bones a little bit? And for me, that's the only note I remember on the story. You know, there may have been another little note here or there, but basically... What we wrote, what I wrote, is what's in there. Not basically. What I wrote is in there. Period. Oh, wow. you know, no one changed anything. And uh, and then of course there's the advantage of working with someone like Mike Zach, which uh, made all the difference in the world. I always say, and I really mean this. Had another artist done that story, no matter even if every single word, every panel description was exactly the same, we might not be talking about that story today. You know, it, it's comics, and it's a fusion of the writing and the art, and and you need both to really be. Uh, at their best for, for a story to really work. Yeah, you do uh, need that blend. Uh, uh, and Mike Mike is brilliant. He's just brilliant, and he he made that story. He really made that story. He, he was on Captain America for a while, too, correct? I mean, amongst yeah, we, other we, things, we worked sure. together. Yeah, we worked together on Captain America for a couple of years, yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, I, I could talk on and on and on about uh, a Craven's Last Hunt, yeah. but that, there's I, some... I want to say that this is possibly my, one of my all-time favorite Spider-Man stories, and that's just not gushing, I'll tell you. Um, for me, that, like I said, reading that, there was something so different about it that, that uh, really made me uh, interested and love this story, so thank I, you for that. I, I had actually introduced Chris to it. He, yeah. he, he didn't, had not really read much of, uh, of Spider-Man, so yeah before, oh, we, yeah, before we move on to the next topic, first of all, yes, thank you. Th- yeah. Thank you for giving I, I that think, I think to us. on behalf of uh, us and multiple nerds that we know, and actually probably legions of nerds. Thank you for what you've done for us. <laughs> and 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 I am I am extremely grateful. You know, we can't pick and choose which stories are going to connect with an audience and which stories are going to last. You know, but that any of them last is an amazing thing. A few months back, I was in uh, Mexico City for a convention, and they had just put out a new edition of Craven, and I must have signed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of copies of that book over the weekend. Wow. Some of whom were, were brought to me by people that had, that had read the story years before. Some were brought to me by people that had just read it in a new edition. And, you know, that's a great thing. That's a great thing for stories to stay alive that long and be appreciated in that way. Uh, so I don't take it for granted. I'm very grateful. 
Well, switching gears. No- oh, oh, I, I, I'm sorry. Before we switch gears, I have to ask you about this. Uh, just thoughts uh, about Marvel's. Uh, so, are you familiar with uh, what they did recently with Superior Spider-Man about a, yeah. a year or two ago? Uh, yeah, I'm just uh-huh. I'm curious about your your thoughts just as or making Doctor Octopus inhabit Peter's body. Just just sort of as the and I understand that obviously the motivations are different, uh, but just there are some conceptual similarities. And I, I'm just you know Chris and I were yeah curious you know about... it, it's comics you'll find conceptual similarities there with Craven. You'll find other stories that came before Craven that you can find uh, you know links to things that that may have inspired me. That's the way it goes. You know, the the end the, the end result is not about you know whether something is similar to something else in some way because it's it's my that's like my running gag. Like when I come up with what I think is a cool story, I realize they did it 50 years ago on the Twilight Zone. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, everybody. Oh well, oh, that, I know that story. Is that a familiar Rod Serling wrote that in 1959. You know, so everybody's always tripping over everybody's stuff. That's just the way it goes. What Sin- matters is what what you do with that and. Can you make it something that that is your? You know, we all, we take all these ideas and all these influences, and we run it through uh, our own perception. Go back to perception again, you know, and then hopefully when it comes out the other end onto the, you know, as a story, um, it's something that reflects us and is unique to us in some way. And I think that's what Dan did with Superior Spider-Man. There may have been you know, a couple of little places where they overlapped, but uh, he made it into his story, not my story, and he did an excellent job of it. Uh, of course, Dan Slott, uh, who Mr. Demetrius is referring to, a, a, another extremely talented uh, writer, currently writer on uh, Amazing Spider-Man. Yeah, yeah uh, a terrific writer and, and a really nice guy. Uh, for the record. Oh, okay, for the record. <laughs> well, switching, it has been noted. Is, <laughs> switching gears now, so let, hopping over uh, to the other side of the fence, um, another one of your beloved story uh, stories was your run on Justice League, which, uh, a.k.a. now... Uh, known in circles as Justice League International. Uh, I own the trade paperback, and um, I, I have to correct. Uh, originally, I thought that you had written the foreword, but then when I went back to look at it again, it was actually written by Andrew Helfer, who was the editor on the original series. But right. I was wondering if you could just take us through kind of the the origins of this run because it's it's so different. It's so different. It's so funny how sometimes when you start with a plan and then the plan falls apart, you end up coming up with something that's maybe even better than what the original idea was. Uh, mm-hmm. If you wouldn't mind taking us through this. The, the original concept, right, was that there was gonna, it was going to be a new JLA series with all the big guns, Superman, Green Lantern, Batman, all of that, and that's not quite what you got, right? Right, right. Well, just before we, I move on to that, I just want to throw in a plug. There's going to be a Justice League omnibus coming out. This month was going to be a hardcover at like a thousand pages. Whoa! Um, so I'm very excited about that, and I did write an introduction for that one. Well, you're going to take my money anyway, so it'll be good. Let <laughs> me get my introduction. <laughs> all right, all um, right. Yeah, you know, for me, it's it's interesting because I wasn't in on necessarily all those discussions. I had worked on the 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 last bit of the previous incarnation of the Justice League, which was Justice League Detroit. Andy brought me. Jerry Conway left the book. Andy brought me on. I finished up one of Jerry's. Uh, plot lines, and then Andy basically said we need to end this book, and we, you know, we, we worked up a story where that's when Vibe got killed and Steel was killed, and it was a big dramatic finale for that for that book. And then along the way, uh, you know, Legends happened, which was the miniseries that this all all these new uh, reborn books spun out of, as people are still doing today. You know, every oh, time a, are they? A big event, they reinvent every title that comes out of it. Every six um, months, it seems like. And. Um, 
and uh, so Andy and Keith were talking about doing the Justice League. So they were the ones that that dealt with the original thing of you know wanting to do the big guns, and then everybody saying, no, you can't have that character, you can't have that character. And by the time I came on board, they pretty much had um, had the lineup set, um, and I got really dragged on board, as I've said before. Um, you know, I had worked on a previous incarnation. Andy, one of the best editors in the business, and again, uh, a, a great guy. Uh, we, we were not just uh, professional friends; we were we were friends. In fact, we grew up across the street from each other. Oh, we didn't wow. know it till years later, uh, but we literally grew up across the street from each other, in Brooklyn. Um, and Andy kept saying, you know, said, you know, Keith was plotting the book, and first Keith thought he was going to dialogue it too. He had never done that before, so he was very insecure about it. And Andy. And Keith both felt they needed somebody else to come in and do the dialogue part. And I was like, I don't need to do it. And I read Keith's first script, and I thought, no, he he doesn't need me. This is fine. Leave me alone. I don't want to do this. You know? <laughs> but one great thing about Andy is he he's like uh, he's like uh, an old uh, Jewish grandmother. You know, he'll 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 find a way to coax. He'll use a little bit of guilt, and then he'll pinch your cheeks and you know, <laughs> uh, give you a kiss on the top of your head, and then you use a little more guilt, and before you know it, you're writing the book. You know. Um, <laughs> And, uh, That's his superpower, and, uh, apparently. That was his superpower. He, he, Andy, Andy really knew how to work with his creators and, and uh, protect us and nurture us and uh, and get work out of us. Uh, and he was just he was he is the unsung hero of our justice. He really, really is. Um, and so you know, I kind of blinked, and, and suddenly it was five years later, where he'd done 150 million pages of. Justice League and Justice League Europe and Justice League Quarterly, and I wrote spin-offs and miniseries and so much stuff, you know. So, uh, but to get back to what you were saying, yeah, the very fact that we ended up with what were considered uh, B-level characters for the most part gave us the freedom to take these characters and do with them what we would. You know, the kind of freedom we wouldn't have if it was Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, and Flash. Um, so it gave us tremendous freedom and allowed us to really put a personal stamp on the book in a way that we, we, we couldn't have otherwise. Okay. Um, in this story, you were, you know, writing the ensemble cast. Uh, how did you go about finding a voice for, like, each of these characters? You know, I don't find the voice. The voice of me. And I know that sounds, you know, like I'm just spinning it around. And That's saying, very and Kung Fu. No, I like you. that. That's <laughs> <confusing>. Right, right. <laughs> J.M. DeMatteis, eh? Yeah, that's right. That's my that's my Zen part, I guess. Coming <laughs> um, but 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 it's true. You know, the characters these for these stories to work, you have to absolutely believe in these characters. And when you believe in these characters and you let them start to talk, they find their own voice. Now that voice, of course, you know, it's still coming through me and through Keith. So. It's going to reflect us in our in our psyches and our attitudes and things like that. But they take on lives of their own, and so it's sort of like people say, "Well, how did you plan to make Beetle and Booster such a great team?" We didn't. We never planned that. It happened on the page. Huh. It didn't happen in our heads. It happened on the page. Maybe in the plot, Keith threw them together for a scene, and then I got them talking, and something in the chemistry between those guys as they began talking to each other. Um, and that was really my main job on that book, was get these guys talking to each other. Let the dialogue start to roll and see who they are. Because Keith had wonderful plots and set everything up so wonderfully, you know. Uh, so, so once these guys started talking to each other, there was a chemistry there, just the way there was chemistry when you meet a, a real person in real life. You know, you walk into a room, you start to talk to somebody, you click, 
That's what happens with the characters on the page, and that's what happened with Beetle and Booster, and that's why they became Beetle and Booster. Not because we ever sat down and said, oh, we're going to take these two characters and make them into this. Never happened. They did it. We didn't do it. I've heard, and see, that's interesting that you say that, because I've yeah. heard that from other writers that exactly. they say, you know, the character tells me what to do. I don't tell the character yeah. what to right. do. Right, and if you force it it's upon true. the character, then you're not really telling a story. Right. The, the more I get out of the way and the more the story and the characters take over, uh, the better it is. And then I can come back in with my with my sort of rational mind as as an editor to look over what I've written and shape it a little bit more and, you know, cut out the fat and finesse a line here or there. But when it's really cooking, um, it's like I'm channeling. You know, I, I'm not even there in the story. I always imagine there's a dimension of story out there somewhere. There's a little guy with a little old-fashioned teletype machine, you know, beaming the story into my head, and it just comes through. And that's uh, it's a great thing when that happens. That's the, that's the best part of, of doing what I do is when I sort of disappear and the story just magically materializes. Well, in 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 line with that, then yeah. can, can we talk about the one punch scene? Can we? I I don't know if there. I, God, I'm hoping that there's <laughs> there's a there's story behind this because yeah. it's just I I know it's a lot of people's favorite moments and I, and I think you you even do a you you've written some episodes of Batman: Brave and the Bold, correct? Yeah, I, I snuck the one punch into uh, yes. an episode. Yes, you did. Uh, Guy yeah. Gardner and Nort was in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, can, but I have to tell you. Uh, you know, 80% of the credit for that goes to Keith because that was there in the plot, you know? Um, so it was really just up to me to how I was going to handle it. And that was one where I, I didn't have to do very much. I had to just let the scene play out, throw in a few uh, lines of dialogue to underscore things. But the basic idea of of Batman just taking Guy out with that one punch was all, all came from Keith. So I give him all the credit for that one. He's I'll a, take the royalties, but I'll give him the credit. <laughs> <laughs> Batman is really uh, quite a a different leader of uh, mm-hmm. of the Justice League than su- he yeah. he's not Superman. He has a different management style. Well, it's so, militaristic. So I mean, it's it's his rules are the highway, basically. Yeah, he. You know, and, but it's also you know the thing the thing I like with Batman there, although he would never admit it. Again, we're talking about him like he's a real person because right, yeah, well, ideas, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. He he, you know, he played it like you know uh, he had to whip these guys into shape and their shenanigans drove them crazy. He loved every second of it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That was the way, that for me, I always knew that behind that his attitude was he was so, he enjoyed these guys. He enjoyed the fact that they were so sort of out of control and so funny and so snarky and so not typical. Uh, and, and, and it was almost like they were expressing aspects, just as the characters are expressing aspects of myself on the page, I feel like the other Justice Leaguers, I never really really put this thought together until now. The other Justice Leaguers were actually a, a way for Batman to express parts of himself that he's never allowed to let out. So he can hang out with these guys and pretend that he's the grim and gritty guy whipping them into shape, you know? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. really, they were sort of expressing an aspect of his own self that he could never let out. So he, had, he took great, I always felt that he took great joy in being with those guys. Well, you even look at the character of Batman in other stories, right. uh, the quote unquote loner. Who surrounds himself with like seventy-five sidekicks? Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no matter what, they have yeah, the I know. Bat I wrote, I wrote a, I wrote a DVD movie called Batman. Uh, well, it was called Batman Bad Blood. The original title yes. was Batman Family, and, and I Batman loved and that. Nightwing and Robin and Batgirl, and you know, it was like uh, Batman and Batwoman Bat and, and Batwing, and yes, right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. No, that's a fantastic well, story. So. I love that story. Well, thank you. 
so yeah, yeah, that's that's very true about Batman. But the great thing about Batman is that there, you know, if you really look at the way he's portrayed, there are so many different ways to play that character. I have written him as the grim and merciless Batman. I've written him as a very, very um, compassionate character uh, um, who is not as dark and as obsessed as as he is in other incarnations. And then there's the Justice League version, which there's a you know, like I said, there's a real lightness underneath uh, the, the mask, you know. Right. So hope. there's a lot of different, and then, you know, Batman and Batman the Brave and the Bold, uh, that was a complete, that was a very light sort of 60s uh, yeah, incarnation of Batman. And I, I loved writing that, that version of Batman. I did, I think, seven episodes of that show, and it was Hammers of, of favorite, Justice. Favorite, that was one of my favorite, favorite animated shows to work on. Really, really loved it. All right, so, so far in your illustrious career, who has been your favorite character to write for? That's an almost impossible question. Really? Is it like you know, looking still, at children? I, yeah, it really is. Well, the, you know, the first of all, there's all the creator-owned stuff that I've done, you know, from Moonshadow and Blood and Brooklyn Dreams and Seekers and, and more recently things like Augusta Wind, and I have two creator-owned projects that I'm working on right now. That's always, you know, that, that's that's another level of favorite children because that's, you know, your conclusive com- universes that you're, uh, creating from the ground up, you know, and those those mean so much. And then there are the characters in these universes, these pre-existing universes that you love so much. And I certainly have favorites, you know, at Marvel. I've always loved Doctor Strange and uh, the Silver Surfer um, so much, you know. Um, and then there's so many DC characters that I love, you know, Batman and Superman, and I love all the supernatural characters. But really, the, the fun of it for me very often is the characters that you don't expect uh, to love, you know. That, yeah. that until you write them, it's like when you write them, you meet them, and suddenly you understand them. Uh, when I was writing Justice League Dark just a couple of years ago, I'd never given Zatanna a second thought. Right. Zatanna came into the book, and I oh, my God, I love this character. I would have never thought about it. You know? Right. Even when I was writing Spider-Man, the character that I kind of fell in love with in an odd way was Aunt May. Huh. Who I always thinking of as this old lady cliche, you know, and suddenly as I'm writing her, I'm seeing all the depth and the layers in her character. Really, really uh, understood and felt that character in a way I never had before. So there are the characters that you love going into it, uh, and then there are the characters that you discover as you write them and, and, and love them that way. You know. Uh, excellent. So, so, so there's many ways, many ways, many different favorites. Excellent, excellent. Well, th- thank you, thank you for that. Um, well. Please take an opportunity now. Let, let us know what you're working on now. Uh, uh, some things that are on the horizon, maybe. Uh, I, you're a very busy man. What what's uh, what's what are you working on now? I uh, let's see. Given and I have been working on the past couple of years. I've been doing this crazy book, Scooby Apocalypse at DC. Yes, I've seen another it. Another one that we kind of stumbled into backwards, the way we kind of stumbled into Justice League, thinking, really, we're going to do this, <laughs> and it's turned into such a fun gig, and we're so happy with the book and the way it's going, and it's like. Will be going for some time now on that one, so that's fun, and it's great that 30 years later I can tell you that Keith and I are still working together, um, because it's just such a great collaboration. And we're also just wrapping up a short run on Blue Beetle. I think the last issue comes out next month or the month after that. Um, I've got two creator-owned projects: one for IDW, which I can talk about, called Impossible Incorporated, uh, being drawn by Mike Cavallaro. Mike and I did a project at IDW called The Life of Time to Save Your 28, which is all-time favorite project, so it's great to be working with Mike again. Nice. That'll be out in the second half of 2018. Okay. I have another another creator-owned project that I'm very excited about that I can't talk about. I can't even tell you who the publisher is oh. yet. Uh, Ooh. It hasn't been announced yet, um, 
and there's so much I'd like to say about it because I'm really excited about well, it. Well, maybe so, when the announcement comes, we can have you back on and yeah, we can talk about absolutely. it. Absolutely. And that also will be out in the, in, the, in the latter half of 2018. And, you know, I also I do a lot of animation work, as we've talked about, and I just finished uh, a really, really big animated project that I know that comic book fans will be very, very excited about. I'm not allowed to talk about that. Ah, <laughs> all right. You tease, sir. You tease. And I've, I've just written a couple of episodes of Marvel's new Spider-Man animated show, and I'm hoping there'll be more of that in the pipeline. Oh, um, fantastic. And uh, and then there are other things, uh, you know, floating around that, that, that it's, not, it's not time to, to chat about yet. But you were a busy man. Hopefully within the next couple of months I'll be able to talk about this animated project. All right. Well, like I said, we'll have to have you on, and we'll talk about all of the stuff that's been announced. Yeah, all the stuff that I can't talk about. Right, that we'll be able to talk <laughs> about. Listen, sir, we could we could not talk to you about stuff you're not allowed to talk about all day. All day. So... <laughs> Don't worry. We will just block off lots of time to not talk about stuff. Hey, while I'm pl- before I go, while I'm plugging things, just this week, uh, speaking of Giffen, we did we, we did our one creator-owned project that we did together at Boom Studios called Hero Squared, and we had a spin-off series called Planetary Brigade. And just this week, the Hero Squared Omnibus came out. It's a gigantic, gigantic uh, uh, book. And I, of all the things I've done with Keith over the course of 30 years, Hero Squared is my absolute favorite thing we've ever done together. So anyone out there that's a fan of our work, uh, uh, I urge you, I demand that you run out right now. Yes. You don't have to run out. Just go online and order it. Um, but anyway, really, if you like our work, it's, it's, um, it's something that I think you will really, really enjoy. Well, so, awesome. And here on the Justice Nerds, we actually have a saying, and that is, bring money. <laughs> well, Mr. Demetrius, in the spirit of... Uh, James Lipton's Inside the Actor's Studio, we would conclude okay. with our final question. Favorite swear word? I have to go with the old standard. You know, I'm from Brooklyn. All right. So, you know, growing up in Brooklyn, every third word out of everybody's mouth, with the exception of my parents, <laughs> who strangely, you know, very, very rarely heard any kind of cursing come out of their mouth, um, every third word was fuck. That's just the way it was. It's a, it's, it's, it's a word that can be bent and twisted in any direction. It has so many different layers and levels of meaning. So that is certainly uh, my number one. And as a writer, versatility in words, I would think, oh, would, yeah. would appeal to you. That's right. That's right. It, it, it is. I remember reading something years ago where someone had a list of all the different ways that word can be used and all the different meanings. It was really, really long. <laughs> and if you think about it, you can really can bend it and twist it in many ways. Um well, and if you're a, if you're a kid listening to this, don't say it. Don't, yeah, don't, <laughs> don't do, say do, it. Do not say it. Yeah. yeah. Do as do as we say, and not as we when, do. When my son gets old enough to listen to this, uh, Adam, buddy, <laughs> you are not allowed to use that word until you're about uh, 15. Yeah. Is that, that, if 15 yeah, is good. Right. 15 is good. Yeah. I think it certainly was coming out of my mouth by then. <laughs> <laughs> well, M- Mr. Demetrius, first of all, uh, thank you for being on our show, but more importantly. Thank you just for your work and for what you've contributed to this field and to our, our, our collective childhoods and, as I said, adolescence and adulthoods and hopefully geriatrics. Yes. Yes. Uh, we, we hope That's you right. are doing what you do for a long, long time. Well, thank you very much. I, pre- I appreciate the kind words. Like I said, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't take it for granted. You know, I really, uh, the, one of the great things about doing this for a living is comics is very interactive, you know? The comic fans are very vocal and passionate, and, and just as I wanted to when I was a reader, you know, I wanted to connect with the writers and artists that I love. People, people you know, do the same with me, and, and I really, really appreciate it. 
and in the age of you know Twitter and Facebook, there's even more of an opportunity uh, for for that kind of connection, a very sort of intimate connection with readership. So when people approach me to tell me that my work has meant something uh, to them, it means something to me as well, just as much as it means something. Well, and uh, as you bring that up, where can people find you? Are there are there places that uh, people can can try to to connect yep, with yep. you? Well, I, I'm on I'm on Twitter. You know, it's just at jmdmateus, and uh, same thing with Facebook. And I also have a website, jmdmateus.com. So uh, I'm easily found. I am not hidden. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, uh, again, thank you very much. Uh, this has been Jay and Chris of the Just Us Nerds podcast interviewing, a, quite frankly, a, a living legend from the comic book industry, Mr. J.M. DeMatteis. Um, so until next time, bye-bye and take care.